Hey, good morning. Hopefully you've got a good cup of coffee handy. You know, every now and then we uh, uh, get some questions on our uh, comment section on our YouTube channel. And uh, we had a couple come in uh, during the course of the week that I thought might be good to answer uh, here on the podcast. And so uh, let me go ahead and address a couple of, uh, of really good questions. Uh, the first one has to do with uh, Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. This is a passage that, uh, especially as of late, has, uh, has found connection with end times prophecy. Um, and uh, it's worth looking at. So in chapter 17, verse 1 of Isaiah, there is mention of Damascus and her being destroyed, utterly destroyed. And uh, the question comes up, what does this have to do with end times prophecy? When you look at the passage itself, uh, you'll realize that Damascus is in view, as is Ephraim and Judah. And as the passage goes on in Isaiah 17, there's a lot to do with God uh, um, correcting his people, bringing, uh, bringing them back to sort of a, a place of being in a, a pure heart and right place with God, um, not, not necessarily, uh, you know, um, enamored with the altars they built in that, but rather just being in right relationship with God. And so the passage talks about a lot of things, but the reason why the opening verse that speaks about Damascus uh, is often finding itself connected with last day's prophecy is because of the fact that the destruction of Damascus that is mentioned in Isaiah 17 verse 1 has not happened yet. Uh, if you read the passage in isolation, you wouldn't necessarily connect it with the last days, uh, except for the fact, again, that since it has not happened, it uh, becomes an interesting passage in, uh, in, in, in trying to figure out if, in fact, it does play a part in last days prophecy. And here's why many think it does, and, and I would suggest that it may as well. I would, I would tend to agree, uh, at least, uh, you know, tentatively. We'll see how it all plays out. But basically, uh, Isaiah 17.1 and the destruction described of Damascus um, uh, basically goes like this. The connection goes like this, that uh, since it's not happened yet, and we know the Word of God is, of course, going to come to pass, then someday it will happen as it's been written there. Um, now, why would it necessarily have anything to do with the unfolding events in the Middle East? Well, because Damascus, Syria, uh, is, uh, is figuring prominently right now in terms of the conflict between Israel uh, and, and, and Syria somewhat, but probably more directly uh, with Iran as they are situated in Syria, in Damascus. Uh, when you consider the current state of affairs in that part of the world, uh, and I'll try and connect, I'll, I'll remember to connect a couple of links here as well, so that you can kind of do some reading on on uh, on this. But uh, Iran has, through her proxies, in particular Hezbollah, also the Iranian National Guard uh, is uh, is active there as well. But they are uh, very prominently situated right around the city of Damascus. As a matter of fact, in the last couple of years, uh, there's like, seems like every few months or so, if not even more frequently, I think it averages about every few months, um, that uh, Israel strikes uh, some kind of a weapons depot or weapons cache right outside of Damascus. Uh, and that weapons cache belongs to, uh, to Hezbollah or has been supplied, is, is manned by Iranian uh, soldiers or again, her proxies and that, as we've said. Um, 
time, uh, because that conflict is going to continue, and I'm, I'm going to kind of connect a few dots here, when we read Ezekiel 38 and 39, Iran is one of those nations that figures prominently uh, among the group of nations led by Russia that will come against Israel in that scenario that Ezekiel describes. We've talked about it quite a bit over the uh, over the months since we started uh, uh, doing this podcast. And of course, for anyone who studies prophecy, this is well-traveled ground. So Iran, or Persia, as it's called in Ezekiel by its ancient name, uh, figures prominently in attacking Israel. And Syria, uh, on a practical, uh, for a practical note, uh, is situated in such a way as to give Iran a good foothold from which to attack Israel when the time comes. Now, uh, not only is Iran uh, continually trying to dig a foothold there that they can, uh, uh, you know, attack Israel from, but the weapons that they're using, uh, in large part, are actually supplied by Russia. Again, I'll connect a link uh, to a. Uh, you know, to a news story from the region that kind of explains this. Of course, you can also dovetail, or uh, connect, I should say, uh, uh, to other links from these uh, uh, links as well, so you can do even more research. But suffice to say, Russia, uh, as we've spoken about earlier, Russia has actually supplied, if not all of them, I think nearly all, but I think it's all of the nations that are described in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 scenario, uh, who play a part. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States being notable exceptions to those who participate. Again, if the United States is involved, we've talked about this. Um, but, uh, but the nations that actively engage Israel with the intent of attacking her uh, are actually armed currently by Russia, who is the leader of that horde that comes against Israel in those days. Um, I'm aware that Turkey is sometimes seen as the leader of that horde. She sometimes is uh, viewed by some prophecy uh, uh, students that uh, they'll actually be the ones who lead the horde. But I lean toward Russia. I think that's who's clearly in view there. But, you know, there's some debate about that. But in any case, when that time comes, Iran will be one of those nations that come against her. So, here's how the scenario might play out. Uh, Iran, or Hezbollah again more accurately, um, Iran's proxies, the way that they often fight Israel, the way they often launch their attacks into Israel from the various places they do, whether it be from Gaza, whether it be from Syria, um, when they t their tactics when they attack are to set up uh, uh, to set up installations in populated areas, sometimes in schools, sometimes in hospitals, literally right in the midst of where a civilian population would be, so that. If Israel retaliates, they have to do so surgically, so as not to uh, so as not to do damage to a civilian population around the Iranian-supplied and uh, established uh, um, strongholds, their uh, installations there. Um, of course, that's exceedingly difficult, and they're not, uh, Israel's not always able to do that completely successfully. But because they're essentially defending themselves for survival, and that's not overstating it, by the way, Iran is in the front of the line as far as uh, uh, the Arab nations that want to see Israel not just defeated, but destroyed, expunged from the face of the earth. And again, if you think I'm exaggerating about that, you just do a little bit of homework, and it won't take you much uh, effort to realize that that's in fact true. Um, but um, since, since Israel is having to defend itself for its very existence by retaliating against these strikes, they often have to do so by striking areas that uh, there's a high risk of hitting civilians. 
that's where the Iranians or their proxies are, are attacking from. Uh, this is true again in Gaza and in Syria. We, we see this also being the case. Uh, and then in many cases uh, in, in Iran, they are uh, maybe not attacking as much as they might be from other places. But in Syria, right around Damascus, there seems to be a location there uh, where uh, Iran is keeping a lot of their munitions uh, that supply their proxies with uh, the ability to attack Israel. And so Israel has to take these things out uh, before they can be used to attack Israel. And so uh, Israel strikes at these places. Now again, the problem is that these places, these uh, munitions dumps are right around Damascus. And so it, the basic thought of the scenario unfolding there in regard to Damascus is that at some point Hezbollah or some other group backed by Iran will attack Israel from that area or they will have some kind of Maybe they'll even have nuclear munitions there at some point. Iran, of course, is trying to develop nuclear weapons and are, are increasingly growing further along in that pursuit. Um, it may very, very well be that they start to store nuclear weapons there. But there's some reason why that area becomes a, uh, a high-priority target for Israel to have to strike. And if they have to strike Damascus hard enough where they actually level the city, um, that may become a spark that not only fulfills that prophecy in Isaiah 17:1, but also may become a spark that um, ignites the conflict that takes place in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so uh, that's a basic thumbnail sketch and idea of why Damascus or why uh, Isaiah 17:1, as it pertains to Damascus being destroyed, may play a part in uh, the unfolding of Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, as we move further into the last days. So as an answer to that question, that is, that's kind of the thinking there. Um, that's why uh, Isaiah 17:1 may play a part in the unfolding of, of these uh, events. Now, it may very well be that something happens there where, um, where uh, God brings that, uh, that destruction upon Damascus and it may have nothing to do with any of this. Uh, it's entirely possible, but the reason we connect those dots is because we're moving continually closer to seeing events like Ezekiel 38-39 unfold, and since Damascus has not been destroyed yet in fulfillment of that prophecy, we often make a connection. Uh, so there you go. Hopefully that helps to answer that question. Um, to stay on the topic of prophecy, but to switch gears for a moment, um, the next question that came in that I want to address today has to do with the rapture, a topic that I love to talk about and that we often talk about uh, here on this channel. And we talk about a lot of church. Um, so of course, you know, when it comes up in scripture, passages like Paul's writings to the Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, um, we of course have a place to talk about it. But we do lots of prophecy briefs at church. We do a lot on this channel. And so we talk about this topic quite a bit. So a question came in, where do we get the idea of the pre-trib rapture? Um, and why not something like post-trip and that kind of a thing? Uh, so let me speak to that a little bit. Now, again, this, this topic would probably, you know, be well suited to a much larger podcast. And we've talked about it a lot, and so I feel like we've covered it quite a bit. But nonetheless, I always feel like it's good to come back to it, especially when questions come up. So uh, why a pre-trip rapture? Where does it come from? And why not a post-trip rapture or something like that? Or, or for that matter, any of the other views? Uh, well, let me start with uh, answering uh, what I think is a very fundamental question that must be answered in regard to the rapture, and that is, why a rapture at all? 
Uh, you know, many people, when we talk about this, those that maybe don't believe in a rapture or believe it comes at a very late point uh, in, in the unfolding of eschatology, like again, maybe a post-trib or something like that, uh, why, why, should, why, a trib, uh, why a rapture at all? Well, let me start with that question. Uh, in in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, I apologize, I can't just turn to the passages while we're, re while we're driving here, but in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, um, Paul speaks about how, uh, even though we are equipped with, uh, and he describes sort of a proto-version of his description of the armor of God in that, even though we're equipped with the armor of God and we'll face hardships and difficulties and challenges, uh, we are not, even though we will face hardships, we're not appointed to God's wrath. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make in the question of why is there a rapture in the first place. The question often comes up, why should believers feel like we're going to escape difficulty and hardship? Um, after all, Christians have been experiencing persecution and, and tribulations of various kinds throughout history. Why should we, especially as Americans, now that we're finally starting to feel some persecution for our faith in these late days, why should we all of a sudden feel like we're going to be snatched away and avoid those things? Well, the simple answer to that question is we're not being snatched away to avoid those things. Um, those things are part and parcel with the Christian faith. Uh, no believer should ever expect to, um, you know, escape persecution or difficulties or tribulations even. Um, and, and so the rapture is not about that. Uh, the fact is that difficulties and hardships are not only part of the Christian faith, but they're often something God uses in the Christian faith to, uh, to bear testimony to his glory and his presence in the lives of believers. And that often it's uh, the persecuting of Christians that causes the church to grow. You know, we talked about and we looked at uh, the death of Stephen in the first century there under uh, when the persecution began. Uh, uh, Stephen is the first martyr. We talked about that uh, famous adage, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, many people throughout the centuries have come to faith uh, because of the persecuted believers that they watched and observed and they came to faith as a result. And so we should never feel like we're going to be snatched away so that we never have to deal with hardship or, or that hardships get so bad and that's why Jesus comes to get us. That's not actually the reason for the rapture. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to go as far as to say there's no connection. Uh, I mean, you know, we, do, we do ultimately escape some of the suffering that's going to come upon the world, but that's different. We're talking then at that point about God's wrath, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, just reiterating, no Christian should feel like we are exempt from hardship. That is not a biblical idea. In fact, Paul would say to Timothy, uh, a young pastor in, uh, uh, oh, forgive me, I think it's 2 Timothy 2.13, uh, where he says that all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is a promise. That's, a, that's, an, uh, that's an insight from the Holy Spirit that should equip us and prepare us to be ready for those things uh, that will come upon us, that, uh, just in the normal course of things as a believer. Now, that's hardship, difficulty, persecution, even tribulation of some kind. But when Paul says we're not appointed to wrath, what that means is we are not appointed to the wrath of God that will come upon sinners who have not come to Christ and are therefore covered uh, by the grace of God as afforded to us by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sins in full. He took the full measure of God's righteous judgment upon sin, upon himself. Okay, so if you are a believer today, if you are a child of God, a Christian, 
whether today or at any point you become a believer prior to Jesus, or prior, I should say, to the wrath of God on the earth uh, during the time of Antichrist. We'll, we'll have to break that down in just a second as well. But if you become a believer at any time prior to that point of God's wrath coming upon the earth, then you will be spared from it by virtue of the rapture because God will not judge his children who have already had their judgment satisfied by Christ. That's an enormously important point. We will not suffer God's wrath because Jesus suffered our wrath for us. Uh, and that is true of any believer throughout all of history. Nobody is appointed to wrath whom Jesus' blood has already paid for. And so that's why there's a rapture. It is an absolutely justified and, you know, without going too far, a necessary thing. Because if God were to leave us here to be judged as he judges the world for its sin, then that would be double indemnity, right? I mean, we're not, we're not being judged for that. Our sin has already been judged at the cross, and uh, Jesus took that. And so that's why there's a rapture. Now, as far as the timing of the rapture, uh, of course, in fairness, it has to be pointed out that there are um, varying views on the timing of the rapture. I, again, hold a pre-trib perspective on that. I believe that the, um, that the rapture of the church happens prior to what we would call Daniel's 70th week. Um, and the reason for that is because Daniel's 70 weeks, as we talked about um, uh, previously on a number of occasions, most recently we just talked about it uh, when we talked about the path to getting there in regards to getting to Jesus establishing his kingdom a couple of days ago. Um, he didn't establish his kingdom a couple of days ago. We talked about that a couple of days ago. Wouldn't that have been great, though? But anyway, so I believe the rapture happens before that because the last of Daniel's 70th, uh, 70 weeks is, a, is like the other 69, appointed to Israel and her holy city. And so uh, when we consider the fact that there is such a thing as a time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, uh, we read about this in Paul's discussion in Romans 9 through 11, and in particular chapter 11 where he mentions the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Um, we, uh, we recognize that, uh, or we should recognize, that God deals with the church and with Israel mutually exclusively. The church and Israel should not be blended or confused. And Israel is central to end times prophecy. As a matter of fact, the entire concept of establishing a millennial kingdom, as Jesus will do, is in direct fulfillment of his promises to Israel, of God's promises throughout the ages to Israel. Jesus will rule and reign on the throne of his father David forever. And this becomes a literal, physical manifestation uh, in, the, in, the, in the millennial kingdom. Well, the church is not... When God begins to once again deal with Israel, now the Millennial Kingdom comes at the end of the Tribulation period. The Tribulation uh, period is a time that is, again, with uh, has Israel in key focus. And so, when we talk about that 70th week, we will not be here. Our job will be done at that point. God is, again, focusing on Israel. That is why, when we get into the Tribulation period, uh, and especially the Great Tribulation period, but I would submit even the Tribulation period, we start to see a very, very uh, Jewish flavor to the description in the book of Revelation. The reason that the book of Revelation reads so much like an Old Testament book is because the Jews are in view for the vast majority of it, uh, and not the church. The church is in view 
uh, up through chapter 3 and, and in some ways represented in other portions like chapters uh, uh, chapter 4 we see in chapter 5 we see saints who are uh, who die uh, for their faith and that kind of a thing although there's some we don't necessarily want to blur those when we start talking about things like tribulation saints in the book of Revelation we we recognize there are some distinctions in uh, in in terms of uh, you know when these people die, they die after the rapture, things like that. Is this, again, this is a larger topic. And then the church comes into view again clearly at the end uh, when we return with Christ and he establishes, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, later on he establishes the millennial kingdom uh, and all of these things. But the vast majority of the book of Revelation is devoted to what God is doing on the earth and Israel is in view. 144,000 uh, witnesses in, in chapters 7 and 14. Those are literal children of Israel. They are from the 12 tribes of Israel. Dan is accepted. We see uh, Joseph's son's name there uh, mentioned in, uh, in, in replacing Dan uh, in, in some of those descriptions. But we're talking about Israel, literal Israel, not figurative Israel, not spiritual Israel. We're talking about literal ethnic national Israelites, excuse me, who are um, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, by the Lord, and ultimately they go and they bear witness, and they share the gospel, um, and that kind of a thing. And so the question is, though, getting kind of back to our, our, our direct topic, uh, as far as the timing of the rapture, one of the uh, points of contention is when does God's wrath start in the book of Revelation? And this is a major point to discuss, and it's debated a lot in conversations like this one. Uh, there is a mid-trib view that believes that the rapture will happen at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Uh, the Antichrist signs the, or breaks his covenant, I should say. I guess this, I should just quickly uh, mention here, the 70th week of Daniel revolves around the idea of the Antichrist signing a seven-year covenant with Israel that he will break at the halfway point, at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Uh, Paul describes the events uh, around the, the circumstances surrounding this event when he talks about how the Antichrist will go into the temple and declare himself God, demand to be worshipped above all that is called God. That's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, so, a mid-trib view would hold that right there at that middle point, as described the mid-trib view, uh, that the Antichrist breaks that covenant and we're raptured away. Uh, a pre-wrath view would hold that the rapture will not happen yet for a little bit longer into that period of time, into that last three and a half year period. A post-trib view would argue that the rapture will not happen until after the tribulation, hence post-trib. Um, I would argue that the post-trib view, one of the strongest arguments against that perspective, with respect to those who hold it, uh, is that to get to the end of the tribulation, we have clearly, whatever your uh, you know, wherever you believe the wrath of God takes place during the course of the tribulation or the great tribulation period, uh, certainly by the end of the tribulation, the wrath has happened. And again, if we're not appointed to wrath, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, then we can't be here for that. So I would argue that the post-trib view um, seems clearly um, disputed by Scripture. Um, but as far as the other views, there's some discussion about those, and, and, and the views have fair points. I, however, believe that in a pre-trip view, uh, in part because of the reasons I described about the 70th week belonging to Israel and, and their focus, and therefore we'd be out of the way, I think the fullness of the Gentiles, which doesn't mean every Gentile that will ever get saved, but it means those Gentiles that get saved up to the number that God has decided. That, when, that, when that cup is full, then he's going to go ahead and, and, and bring us home. 
But another reason I hold that view, uh, I've mentioned 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 already a couple of times, and this is a point that is, that is disputed. Um, but from a pre-trip perspective, uh, my view of 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul in verses 7 and 8 talks about how, um, and for this I will glance over just to kind of read it really quickly, where Paul talks about that for uh, the, uh, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and, uh, and, uh, and only he who restrains will do so until he is taken away, and then the mystery of lawlessness will be revealed in the man of sin and that. So those things will not, he will not be revealed until the restrainer is taken out of the way. Now here's where the dispute and the discussion come up. What is the restrainer? Who is the restrainer? Uh, the restrainer in that discussion, or in those verses, in the surrounding verses, seems to be described uh, both in a general or a, a neutral gender, but also in a masculine gender. And so it is fair to say that the restrainer is a person, but the question is who? Uh, differing views on this. In the pre-wrath view, if I understand it correctly, the pre-wrath view would hold that the restrainer is Michael the archangel, who has often stood in defense of Israel. Again, not a point without merit. Uh, people like Marv Rosenthal would hold a view like this. If you read his book on the pre-wrath rapture, uh, if I remember that's where I got that from, uh, from reading his book. And again, it's a, it's a view that has some merit to it. Um, however, uh, I, I, my perspective on that, and again, this is not unique to me, uh, is that the restrainer is not Michael the Archangel, but is in fact the Holy Spirit as active in the church. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit will never actually be gone from the earth because the Holy Spirit is God. There will still be people being saved during the tribulation period. The angel flying through the heavens declaring the gospel, the 144,000 declaring the gospel. Certainly many Jews will come to faith during that time, but likely so will many Gentiles. And so there is uh, the Holy Spirit will not be absent from the world during that time. However, the church will be gone from the world. And the Holy Spirit's activity in the church right now uh, is one of the reasons, I believe, why the Antichrist has not come onto the scene yet, why so much of the evil that will be around during the tribulation period has not fully come to be realized, uh, is because right now God is restraining it by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Now again, this is not an, a slam dunk argument, this is not an open and shut case. Uh, it is disputed, but that is the, that's one of the reasons, and I think when we consider the overall scope of discussions on the rapture and all that kind of a thing, this particular perspective on this, as it emerges from our study of Scripture, seems to me to make the most sense. Uh, uh, in the overall picture of, of, of these things, I think this view of what the restrainer is fits best into that, uh, into that picture. So, um, so again, there are a number of, um, oh, and I should also say, too, that uh, what a, uh, there's another reason why I hold a preacher view, too, and it has to do with the idea, and this, is, of course, is one of the disputed points, is when does the, uh, when does the tribulation actually start? Uh, when does it take place? When does it start? And for this, we would look to Revelation chapter 6, in which there are... Um, uh, in which there are a couple of ideas on when the tribulation starts. Does it start uh, at the point of the sixth seal, where we move from a period of time after the rise of the Antichrist, after the wars and famines and pestilence and such that take place, 
and then in the sixth seal, what we see happening is uh, that uh, we start to see the signs in the heavens and all these kinds of things, and the statement by those on the earth uh, that the wrath of the the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Who is able to uh, to, to withstand it? And so. Because of the fact that the signs in the heavens start to take place in that point, and there is this sense that the day of the Lord, uh, the, the wrath lamp has now come, seems to be what's uh, or is what is being said there. And it's generally held uh, by those that hold a non-pre-tribulation view that this is the point at which the wrath of God starts, and so therefore the rapture could happen. Um, the rapture could happen right up to this point pre-wrath, or, you know, uh, it's after the mid-trip, technically speaking, but it would be pre-wrath. Um, I would contend that a strong case can be made that the wrath of God actually, while the Great Tribulation is, is clearly not until the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation, I would argue that the Tribulation, which is generally understood to be the seven years, but it's the great tribulation that we consider the wrath of God. Why wouldn't we consider the entire 70th week? Why not the entire seven-year period? Uh, why would that not be considered the wrath of God? Well, the argument would go that because the first, uh, first four seals uh, have to do with the wrath of Antichrist. Uh, you could argue maybe the fifth is included there as well, but clearly the first four um, uh, would, would deal with um, the wrath of Antichrist on the earth, but it's not until the sixth seal that it becomes the wrath of God. The argument being that it's not God who is, who is uh, ultimately uh, bringing this destruction upon the earth, but it's the Antichrist. Um, I don't, my answer to that would be that I don't think that's as ironclad an argument. I know much has been written on it, but I don't find the arguments as convincing uh, as, as, uh, as they're generally held to be. Uh, and one of the reasons is this is that even though the Antichrist is the one who is, during those first seals, um, bringing the devastation on the earth, he is unleashed there in the first seal. We see, again, the pestilence and the famine and the wars and, and, war and such and everything, which, by the way, parallels uh, those early verses in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, Re in uh, Matthew 24 when Jesus begins to describe the last days, too. Um, even though it's Antichrist who is actively responsible for these things during that period of time. That doesn't mean that ultimately God himself isn't behind that. Uh, here's, my, here's two points that I would bring to that. First off, when we talk about the breaking of the seals, it's Jesus who breaks the seals. Remember in chapter 5, there's John weeps because there is this scroll that is written that has the seven seals on it, and John weeps because no one's found worthy to break the seals on the or to open the scroll uh, and such until Jesus comes. Behold the Lamb. And so the Lamb begins to break the seals. In other words, none of those events that happen under Antichrist can happen unless Jesus breaks the seals. So who is ultimately responsible? Okay, that's one thing. The other argument that I would bring is that God has often brought his judgment by, by, through the vehicle of other human agencies throughout Scripture. Uh, whether, you know, when we think about something like Habakkuk, uh, a, book, uh, a prophet like Habakkuk, who, uh, if you remember the book, it's a wonderful, short, very short little uh, uh, minor prophet book in the Old Testament that, is, uh, that really answers one of the most profound questions we wrestle with. 
Um, I don't understand why you're doing things the way you're doing them, God. Uh, Habakkuk, um, you know, sees his people, they're wicked. God, why aren't you doing something about it? God says essentially, well, I'm going to do something about it, but you wouldn't believe me if I told you what it was. And Habakkuk essentially says, well, try me. And God explains he's going to bring the Chaldeans to judge his own people. And Habakkuk essentially says, I don't believe it, you know. Why would you use the Chaldeans who are more wicked than us to judge your own people and such? And so Habakkuk's wrestling is with God doing it this way. But notice, though, God is using a human agency, a wicked, uh, conquering people to come and bring judgment upon his own people. And we see this repeatedly, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament. So for God to do something like that in, in, in terms of the last days, for God to simply unleash the Antichrist, now, of course, the Antichrist is ultimately empowered by Satan and all this kind of thing we understand. But hasn't God always used Satan's you know, activities to ultimately bring about his good. So uh, for those reasons, I would say that the argument that the wrath of God doesn't begin until the second uh, half of the tribulation period, um, on the one hand, I get it. Sure, the great tribulation period is clearly the last three and a half years. However, to say that the wrath of God uh, oh, and one last thing, I guess, on that point, too. In the sixth seal, where, where those on the earth say the wrath, the day of the, of the Lord's wrath has come, um, uh, that term has come does not always, and frankly, quite often does not mean that it immediately speaks to right now. Oh, now it has arrived, right this minute. But rather, it is often used, and you can, you can do any simple search on any of your Bible software to look this up, is that it often speaks of, of just simply recognizing something that has already come. And so again, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying these make the ironclad case for a pre-trib rapture, but the over, I think the overwhelming evidence in Scripture does point to that. But I, I make these points to say that some of the other views that, that you know, sometimes are held to have more concrete evidence, uh, I would say it's not as concrete. There's cracks in the concrete. Uh, in regard to those things. And I think when you consider that along with the other uh, elements of, um, of where Scripture speaks about these things, both explicitly, again, I would say Paul uh, and his writings to the Thessalonians and those kinds of things, and even implicitly. Uh, one other time we spoke about this, and I'll, I'll end with this because I know we're going a little long now, but uh, in a previous episode, um, uh, uh, and actually in a conversation online with one of the folks commenting, uh, we brought up this example. Um, one of the implicit, again, this is not something you'd build your whole argument on, you would build it on explicit or clearly stated passages, but when there's implicit potential evidence as well, it can sometimes help to bolster the case. And so this is an implicit. Uh, in the days of Noah, um, there were three groups of people. Uh, when the flood came, the judgment came upon the earth, there were essentially three, I'll put it in quotes, groups of people. One, of course, were those who perished in the flood. The others were those, uh, another group was those who were preserved through the flood. And then there was this other person, obviously not a group, but a person who was removed before the flood. Okay? The group that was perished in the flood was clearly the world, unbelievers. Those who were preserved through the flood were those who took God at his promises and he protected them through the flood. We would make that typically, typologically, metaphorically, a picture of Israel. But then there's Enoch, seventh from Adam, who walked with God and then was not, for God took him. Uh, we read this in the genealogy that leads up to Noah. Um, and this Enoch simply walked with God and then he was gone. God took him. I would see in that 
implicit, not explicit, but implicitly maybe a picture of the rapture that came prior to the judgment, who the Jews are preserved through uh, in a world that ultimately is ju under judgment of God. And so, again, I wouldn't build my whole rapture argument on that, but I would say that, uh, that it, it's, it's an implicit example that can help to serve uh, to support the argument a little bit. Now, of course, all arguments probably could point to explicit and implicit. Again, that's why I try to be respectful when I talk about other views, even though I don't hold them. Um, I think there's merit to the arguments, and I think each view should be researched and it should stand or fall on its own merits. In my view, the pre-trib view has the most merit. Uh, and so that's the view I teach. Now, if it turns out I'm wrong, you know, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with uh, some friends who were amillennial, don't believe in a millennial kingdom. And so, um, uh, and in our conversation, uh, I, I kind of made the joking uh, old adage, you know, well, hey, for the, if you're not pre-trib, don't worry, we'll explain it to you on the way up kind of a thing. But I also went on to say, in fairness, I said, look, if it turns out it's not pre-trib and we're still here, then you can explain it to me while we're still here. You know, so I, I don't take a hill-to-die-on approach on this. I do hold my view strongly. I, I think I've got good, solid biblical support for it, and I think a lot of people that hold a preacher view do. But I also have respect for other views where people feel as strongly about their own perspective. But that's my answer to the question. And so um, no doubt I'll get some, uh, some comments on that that maybe you have other points you want to bring up that we can discuss and that kind of a thing. And no doubt we'll be talking about this topic in future episodes as well. But thanks for asking questions and thanks for interacting. I hope this went some way in answering those two questions. And if you have questions of your own, please feel free to share them. Um, and uh, from time to time, we'll take a podcast and just try and answer a couple, uh, two or three, and, and see how it goes. Again, I don't claim to, you know, hopefully by now, if you've been watching, you know that I don't know everything, and I'm certainly not claiming to be the expert on any topic, but my desire is for this podcast to be discipleship-based, and as we go through the Word together, and as we talk about topics that relate to our faith, my hope is that we can all grow together through them as we consider them, as we respectfully agree and disagree and all those kinds of things. The goal is ultimately growth in Christ, and so uh, whatever our view is on this particular topic, uh, the good news is that as believers, one day we'll be able to have uh, just some great fellowship together in heaven, and none of these things will even matter anymore. So, But for now, we'll continue to talk about them. But God, thank you so much. Father, we just love that uh, you've given us so much in your word that we, can, uh, that we can put our hope in, that we can stand upon, that frankly, that we can understand. Some topics like this one uh, leave some room for discussion, and I just pray that Father, all, at all times, we would seek to gain as much wisdom and knowledge as we can on these topics, but that we would also always discuss them uh, with words seasoned with grace in that, Father, and that we would uh, just impart grace to the hearers as we have these discussions back and forth. Uh, whatever the case, Father, uh, we do thank you that a day is coming when Jesus will come and get his bride. And whenever that happens, Father, help us to be ready. Uh, Father, if it's before any of these things come to pass, then Father, we just rejoice in the idea that uh, you'll snatch us, uh, that Jesus will snatch us away prior. If we go through some of these things or a great portion of it, Father, help our faith not to be shaken by that. Ultimately, our faith is not in the timing of a rapture. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross once and for all to take away our sins. And we thank you and bless you and praise you that one day, at whatever point it happens, we'll finally be home and we'll see you face to face. In the time that remains, help us to be driven to uh, that calling to be ambassadors for Christ, bringing the good news of reconciliation, the gospel, to the world around us so that uh, the question will cease to be so much about when it happens, but that the number that go 
will be larger. Uh, we just pray that that fullness of the Gentiles will be fuller than full, Father, uh, with just many, many souls uh, added to the church. So we thank you, we praise you, we bless you, and uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps to guide us and lead us not only through each day, but even in dealing with the hard questions. So thank you, Father. We praise you and bless you for you, your word, your son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd like to comment, as always, you can do so on our church website, or I'm sorry, on our, uh, on our YouTube page, uh, or on my personal website at parsonspad.com. Uh, you can email me from there or from our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And as always, we encourage you to join us if you're anywhere around the Franklin area and you want to, in Franklin, Tennessee, and you want to come on out and spend a Sunday with us, or if you live in the area and you're looking for a good home church, we'd love to have you come and grow in Christ alongside of us. So uh, until we see you again, God bless you, and uh, we'll see you soon.